Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Welcome, you have tuned in to episode number 169 of Linux in the Hamshack, and this is our pre-Hamvention 2016 episode, which hopefully will actually be out before Hamvention 2016, which is just a few, few short days away. My name is Russ, K5TUX, I'm the host of the program, and we also have Cheryl across from me. Hello, everyone. And as of the last episode, we have Bill, November Echo 4 Romeo Delta. Howdy, howdy. Since it is Hamvention week and we've got all kinds of things to do, we're going to try and blow through this real quick, and I know that's not going to happen, but I figured I'd just put it out there. So. No, but we have lots of work to get done for Hamvention, so we got to get, get through it as quick yeah, as Yeah, we got to get through it if we can. So we're going to tackle our amateur radio topics for the night. The first one is a radio amateur suing the North Carolina, is that public radio network or something like that? I think that. it's uh, something repeater network. So, they have yeah. a huge repeater network, yeah. Over being banned off of their network. And the, the crux of this is on the 4th of June last year, former user of the public repeater network or something like that, sued 42 of the repeater owners, uh, the issue being whether the repeater owners have the right to determine who can and cannot use their network, which is potentially an important issue with the uh, ramifications for the entire amateur radio community, as I'm sure you can all imagine. And I, I'm not sure which way I wanted to come down on this, but Bill, you had some interesting thoughts, and you seem to have a good angle on the legalese here. So um, why don't you tell me or tell them what you told me in the chat room the other day? Yeah, well, the uh, repeaters in general are, are private uh, networks that uh, that uh, the users of the, the repeater owners do not have to allow any specific user on it. In fact, it's it's protected in the Part 97. Limiting the use of a repeater to only certain stations is permissible. So uh, basically, uh, the, the case has, has virtually no merit with uh, regards to legal standing. Uh, whether or not this redefines, you know, private property laws within amateur radio uh, the amateur radio service, uh, that's yet to be determined. We'll have to kind of watch this case and, and see how it unfolds. Apparently, uh, this uh, gentleman, uh, what was his name, Kenneth uh, Bryant, uh, was accused of selling radios and other equipment on the repeater. He was told to stop, and I believe he kept on doing it. So uh, they basically cut him off. I think the repeater owners are well within their right. I'm, I'm not a a big repeater user myself, so it doesn't affect me that much. But uh, we could see some uh, redefining of that Part 97 rule should this go any further. Well, and as we'll learn in an upcoming story, the way the law works is not always the way it should work. But also, uh, there I think there's some doubt about, I think his angle, Kenneth's angle on this was that he wasn't selling. And there is, there is actually in part of the Part 97 rules mentioning items for sale if you don't have any particular pecuniary interest and stuff like that. So maybe he was saying that, well, even though I was talking about things that are for sale, that's no basis for grounds for removal. But it, the rule does seem pretty clear about the fact that if the repeater operators don't want you on their repeaters, they don't have to let you. Right. Yeah. He's trying to bring in the other parts of the 97 that, that talk about that specifically. But I mean, in the end, the, the, the trumping thing is that it is a private network, period. 
We'll have to wait and see. I mean, this this could be interesting if it does go further. Certainly, because it does seem like it's kind of cut and dry, but I guess there is nothing cut and dry in the law. No, for sure. All right, so, Bill, talk about some uh, other FCC-related yeah. stuff. Yeah, Missouri Amateur petitioned the uh, FCC for a symbol communication sub-bands. So, basically, uh, James E. Whidbey... N0ECN of Gladstone, Missouri, has petitioned the uh, FCC to designate Morse amateur radio band segments as symbol communication subbands. And I kind of read through this, and, and I, I think he's, he's aimed more at the original novice portions and tech plus portions that the, the technicians have access to are, are CW-only subbands. And uh, I, I guess he would like to see uh, you know, digital communications being allowed in those subbands. It looks like they want to redefine all those uh, those purely CW only subbands as a uh, you know a digital use band. I guess for like JT sixty five, Olivia, and all those uh, all those uh, communication modes. That seems to me like an idea whose time has come. I think restricting digital parts of the band to CW only is a little archaic when there are many other modes available out there. But I also believe that the idea of keeping the band segregated, at least in part, is a good idea because you don't want the digital parts of the band being cluttered up with broadband transmission techniques like single sideband and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want a separation between voice and, and digital modes, even the the digital voice modes, which you know take up a huge huge segment of the uh, the bandwidth as well. You know, I already see that the NAQCC is, is of course, totally against it because they're for the preservation of. Uh, of uh, Morse code in the, in the current band segments. Hardly feel like Morse code is going to disappear just because the bands are designated digital only as opposed to CW only. No, and all you have to do is join any, any CW contest, and they're everywhere across the subbands, including inside the, you know, the accepted windows for JT65, PSK31, and RIDI, and vice versa. You know, when there's a RIDI competition going on, it's the same thing, you know. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. Right. <laughs> You'll find them everywhere they're not normally supposed to be, uh, you know, minus, I guess, the, uh, the few, few bands that are very specific to CW only. It's interesting that we have to sort of deal with the fact that there are novice and advanced class operators out there. There are whole allocations just for them, even though those licensed classes no longer exist. Those people, the people who have them still exist. Technicians earn all the novice privileges now. So if you're a no-code tech, technically you've earned all the uh, code or the novice bands as well as the uh, original tech plus bands. The original story came from the North Carolina something repeater network.net site just so we make sure we're citing our sources here. Right. Yeah, they put out a gag order for their members, you know, don't talk about it, whatever, you know, while the case is going on. All right, so to wrap up our amateur radio topics tonight, we're going to have a brief discussion about being new to the amateur radio hobby and what's the best way to sort of jump in. And we have kind of touched on this in the past, but everyone has their own ideas about it. And I'm assuming, Bill, you threw this in there because you had some specific thing you wanted to say about it, but we can certainly bandy about ideas about jumping into the hobby. And I think you're talking specifically hardware here, but um, I guess we'll see where you wanted to go with it. Yeah, mainly hardware. You know, I I see just about, gosh, almost every week or every other week, a new thread in Reddit or or on QRZ about, uh, you know, do you have a new ham? Uh, What should I do? What am I buying? You know, should I start with QRP? And then you get all these guys that are, no, you can't start with QRP. It's, it's so stressful and, and everything else. And so I thought we'd just have a kind of a little open discussion about, uh, you know, what you do when you're new and, and uh, you know, what, what modes you should, should try to shoot for. 
You know, we have a lot of people, you know, especially in this area that are just joining for VHF, UHF communications only. You know, they're into the emergency communications portion of it. You know, we have a pretty big uh, Aries group here and they do a lot of the events around town. So, you know, some of these guys, you know, they're only foray into uh, amateur radio is buying their Baofeng or, or buying a, you know, a D-Star rig and they never get any further. And once they get into HF or they finally upgrade to, to, to general, you know, they're like, wow, gee, what should I do? And they, they see uh, there's a huge, huge amount of activity in the QRP area with uh, summits on the air and even national parks on the air. You see a lot of people doing it. And uh, a lot of people are afraid to get into QRP because they think, God, five watts, you're not going not gonna to get very far. But, you know, when you look at it, five watts versus 100 watts, you're only talking about two S units. As long as your antenna is good, QRO, QRP, it's all the same thing. You know, it's all about the antenna. Right. That's something you should learn right away when you get into the hobby is that the S scale or that the DB scale is a logarithmic scale. So therefore, the difference between five and 10 is much greater than the difference between 10 and 100 and so on and so forth. And then I was going to actually say that there's some debate, perhaps, about the definition of QRO. If you're a QRPer, QRO is five watts. If you're uh, a regular user, QRO is yeah, legal limit, right? Right. You know? It's yeah. it's always funny to see the people who are like hardcore QRPers, and you say, "Well, I've operated on five watts," and like five watts, tenth of a watt. If you can't work the world on a tenth of a watt, you're doing it wrong. You can work the world on just about any any wattage. It's all about propagation, your antenna, and the guy on the other end. You know, it really doesn't it doesn't matter so much. You know, your your outbound power. You know, I guess the, the definition of of you know, enough power is enough power to get the communication to go through. And that's actually part the, of the rule book too. Is you're supposed to make contacts on the minimum possible power. I don't think people really pay attention to that anymore, but that's the way it's supposed to be. The whole argument between QRP, 100 watts, QRO, you know, the full-blown 1,500 watts, you know, it's it's just not really an argument. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, do whatever you can afford to do and, and have fun doing it. I do both 100 watts, uh, you know, and 5 watts and 1 watt, and I have fun no matter what wattage I'm running. And somehow I'm always able to make contacts. You know, I, I try to do contests using QRP just for fun. You know, it's uh, it's always interesting to see how much you can get with that low amount of power. And when you do operate QRP in, in radio sport and contests, you know, you do you do get into a, a smaller group of individuals uh, competing for the prize. You know, whether that be a certificate or whatever, it's definitely an opportunity for uh, some users in, in larger markets to attain a certificate or a possible win for the uh, section and stuff. So. Are you saying QRP or QRO is the way to start in? Or just like basically if you're going to do HF, do a barefoot radio and that's all you need? Or Yeah, I do whatever you can afford to get. You know, uh, There's a lot of entry-level QRP rigs or you can buy a nice used 100-watt uh, rig and get involved in amateur radio on the HF side. There's really, <clears throat> there's really nothing, nothing that should stop you from trying whatever you want to try. And especially don't listen to me or... Russ or anybody, <laughs> just do whatever you want to do and, and have fun doing it. I think the folks who maybe downplay QRP are worried that someone who's just getting into the hobby might be a little frustrated by hearing a signal that they can't contact because propagation is not necessarily what it should be. And if you're only running a watt or something like that, it may lead to displeasure with the hobby over time. But again, Radios that put out more wattage tend to cost more. You just kind of have to deal with those things. I've never run more than 100 watts in my entire life. I've never owned an amplifier. 
if there's a station out there that I want to contact and I can't reach them on 100 watts, then it just wasn't meant to be. And I'm just, I, I don't see myself ever owning an amplifier. That's just kind of my own thing. I've sat in front of an amplifier, you know, not not here at the house, but at a friend's station and, you know, sit there with an alpha and I still can't make a contact, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so next thing would be build versus buy. I'm a big fan of the buy philosophy because I don't have the time to sit down and build kits and stuff. Not that I wouldn't love to because I would love to, but I just don't have that kind of time. It's about what you can afford to do and what you have time to do. I mean, building is a great, great portion of the hobby. A lot of people get involved in it. A lot of these rigs come as, you know, partial kits or simple kits. Look at an Elecraft. You know, you can kind of buy a plug-and-play type kit radio, um, you know, save 100 bucks, so it's not built at the factory. You can get into some of these smaller, uh, you know, single-band, maybe two- or three-band radios that you can build. It's a, it's a fun part of the hobby, and, you know, it kind of gives you, I don't know, a little satisfaction that uh, you're able to do these contacts and, and enjoy the hobby with something you built yourself. But as a new person, you know, unless you have a really good electronics background and want to solder a lot of stuff and, you know, a building might be a little frustrating to start with because you're probably going to build something that possibly is QRP. You probably don't have all the testing gear to get the thing perfectly tuned. So you might have to deal with that where if you were to maybe buy a you know, a $200 rig out of HamFest, like Hamvention or off eBay or one of those other sites that uh, you can buy a fairly cheap, good rig. You know, look at the, what, the TS-440s. Those run like $250, $300. You know, a good 100-watt rig, 80s vintage. They run perfectly well. We just uh, we just used uh, one of those this weekend, and it did, did really well. Again, do do whatever you have time for and, and uh, whatever you can afford. Well, the older rigs are definitely built like tanks, and you don't have to worry about their performance, generally speaking. As long as they've been well cared for, they'll pretty much last forever. The used market for ham radio gear is robust. There are all kinds of ways to get into, particularly HF, for not much money. When you're getting into VHF and UHF, the the price point tends to be a little lower because you're not dealing necessarily with uh, all the bands and all the modes and stuff like that. So um, it's easier to get into that part of the hobby. But when you're talking about HF, which is sort of opens up the world to you, not counting technologies like Echolink and All-Star and D-Star and stuff like that, you can spend a, a reasonably little amount of money and still get into the hobby and not have to worry about putting a kit together. But if you are the kind of person who gets satisfaction out of putting circuits on a circuit board then I would definitely recommend doing the kit building. And Elecraft has some great stuff for doing that, along with many other kits that are out there for getting into particularly HF. A lot of companies uh, blooming from that area right now. L&R Precision, I mean, they have a couple of new rigs out. They have the new mountain topper uh, that we talked about, the five-band mountain topper, and the uh, L uh, with the LD11, the uh, 160 to 6, five-watt little rig. I think that's at a $700 price point or something like that. Those are great, and they're getting great reviews. A lot of the soda guys, again, summits on the air, are using those rigs with uh, with a great amount of success. So I see here you have uh, HT Mobile and Bass. What what should you get? It's a thing worth considering. You're, obviously, if you're talking about HF bands, you're not going to be finding an HF Handy Talkie. There may be you one. Kits have one. Yeah, you Kits has one. You Kits has one. Yeah, they have. Uh, I think it's a twenty and forty meter uh, sideband uh, like Handy Talkie type device. And uh, you can probably find that uh, some uh, good YouTube videos on that. I guess uh, HD would be more your VHF, UHF, you know. And again, that gets into the the Balfangs or you know low end. Uh, you know, if you're just going to do FM, then some lower end uh, Icoms and Yezu rigs. 
Right, but if you're in a good area, if you have a good Echolink or um, what's the other one that I'm not thinking, IRLP-connected repeater network in your area, even a $30 handy talkie is going to get you all over the world. VOIP technologies help out in that regard. So you you can talk to Ireland on your one-watt handy talkie if you're in the right area. Most people will have a handy talkie simply because they are inexpensive and it's a quick way to get into the hobby. So that's probably a good entry point. But I would prefer to have a base rig and an HT because you can, you can, and by base rig, I'm talking about a VHF, UHF unit. And by that, I mean a mobile unit because you don't necessarily have to have a big, hefty base unit for VHF and UHF communication. In fact, I've never had one. I always use a mobile rig just connected to a power supply is all you really need for that because generally speaking, you're connecting to a repeater that's, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away or whatever. I don't know a lot of people who work two meter simplex and if you're doing packet or something like that you would be doing that yeah yeah packet for sure or if you're doing satellite you'd be doing uh vhf simplex or something along those lines right Uh, a lot of guys with the satellites will use the hts because you're using a you know gaining antenna with some gain pointing up at the bird directly at the bird so uh you only need a five watts or so to get up to the bird right and they need a whole lot less than that to get back to you so (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. They're only putting out milliwatts, like about 250 milliwatts or less. KD0IJP says, don't forget antennas is a good way to get into building things. That's very true. Antennas, particularly long wires, are really, really easy to put together. And they work really well, especially on HF communications, particularly if you have a lot of space to put them in or have even a basic knowledge of how to create like a trap to do multiple bands on your long wire or your dipole. G5RV is always a easy way to get into antenna building and stuff like that too just a few little pieces you i mean all you need is some wire and a and a so239 out there and you can build yourself whatever you need you can actually build yaggies out of coat hangers and stuff like that too i mean you if you really want to get into it antennas are an easy way to start building stuff and there's not a lot of componentry involved it's usually just something that looks like a radial or a set of radials organized in some resonant fashion we got your question about uh, recommendation for a power supply, linear switching. Well, I, I only have linear power supplies here, and I can tell you a switching power supply weighs about uh, a third of a linear power supply. If you have to lug it out to the field for an event, like we just did a National Parks on the Air thing this past weekend, and you know I lugged a good old Astron out there, and I have a pyramid here too, and uh, yeah, they're pretty heavy. I had to make my boys carry them. I have an old uh, Kenwood PS30, which is a linear power supply, and yeah, that thing is very, very heavy. <laughs> I don't think it really matters what kind, right? Yeah, the switching is okay as long as it's less noisy, as uh, Petro is saying. But uh, I think they've done a lot of work on those, so they're not quite as bad as they once were when they first came out. And Klewick also mentioned 5-.com that has some QRP SDR devices. Okay, that's a new one. We're going to have to put that one in the show notes. The more resonant you make that antenna, the better it's going to work. You know, the long wires work great. The NFEDs work great. But, uh, you know, if you're having to chew up a lot of your wattage in your in your tuner, you know, every watt you lose tuning it out through the tuner is a watt that's not getting transmitted out to the antenna, especially when you're building your own. You know, it's always it's always best to build resonant antennas to start with because you'll have the most success with them. And the success of your antenna will obviously determine your satisfaction level (laughs) with your power level. (laughs) That's that's true, because if all of the power you're generating is actually going out the end of the antenna, you'll be much happier with your life. Well, I think that was a fair discussion, and uh, we actually got some nice 
feedback in the chat room, people talking about Astron power supplies. You see those everywhere. You go to Hamfest, yeah. and there are people who have tens and dozens of those things. I have a pyramid that I power my VHF rig with, and of course the Kenwood to power the HF rig. But Astrons are everywhere. My good old RS35 has been running for 20 years, so I can't can't complain about it. And I think I've had my pyramid for almost as long, too. Good power supplies. You can't go wrong with picking one of those up in the used market, either. All right. We're ready to move on to our open source topics for the night. We've got a couple of quick ones we're going to start off with. The first one being an interesting idea for doing two-factor authentication with Linux, which is pretty cool. I've tried to get alternative single-factor authentication working with Linux, like fingerprint scanners and stuff like that, and it's always been a challenge. Apparently, you can use the Google Authenticator to do two-factor authentication. Yeah, I was I was looking at it. Uh, Linux.com had a nice article right up about it, and uh, it looks like it's really great, especially for a server that's connected to the network that you're not going to get on there and do a lot of, you know, sudos and, and updates and all this other stuff, too, but, you know, you want to protect it from anyone just trying to get in there. Two-factor authentication is great for protecting uh, the server. And, you know, obviously email works out really well, too. I mean, I use it on all my email accounts, and I, I wouldn't do it any other way. And it's always it's always interesting to see how often uh, your account gets hit because you'll get a text right away. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're not getting into my account. <laughs> <laughs> but when I saw this, I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is kind of cool. I'm going to try this out. We have a, you know, a server in the closet. And uh, I was thinking of putting it on there for a test. I didn't get it on there yet, but uh, it, it's super, super easy according to the instructions. So, uh, so I'll have to report on this uh, maybe next time, uh, see how it went. I'm going to take a look at this as well because I've been looking through the documentation on it, and it's an apt-get install away when you have Ubuntu anyway. I don't, I didn't check to see if it was actually part of a PPA or actually in the distribution, but one, one way or the other, you can get hold of it pretty quick. And it actually has a module built into PAM, which is the pluggable authentication module system in Linux. So you can integrate it with one line of code into your authentication scheme on any Linux box. There's documentation in the show notes, so you'll find out uh, exactly yeah. how to do that if you want to give it yeah, a shot. Yeah, I wouldn't put it on your desktop Linux computer uh, just because you end up doing too many uh, too many updates and playing around and stuff like that. But uh, if you have a server that's you know a web server or something like that, maybe even a file server in your in your house or office, then that would be a great option, I think, to protect it. Sounds excellent. And uh, also on a quick topic, we have Linux Mint 18 up updating to Ubuntu 16.04 on the back end, which usually happens since Mint is based on Ubuntu. They have a couple of things like Mate and stuff like that that they put on top of it. Um, I, I noticed the commentary that you posted in here on this story uh, indicating that most people were not really uh, enthusiastic about this update of Linux Mint going to 18. Uh, a couple of reasons being the integration of different desktop applications for cross-platform use going away from like PDF readers and stuff like that for ones that uh, are named poorly. It's like, come on, people, the, op <laughs> the open source community is full of stupid names for things. I mean, I'm not sure why anyone thinks this is a problem. And, and the nice thing about in the closed source world, you have an application called Microsoft Word, for example, and you know when you hear Microsoft Word what it does. It's a word processor. When you hear, you know, Ikiga, you know, what the hell is that? That doesn't have, <laughs> give you any idea what the application is for. This idea of bad nomenclature, you know, everyone should get over themselves as far as that's concerned. 
Yeah, basically just repackaging uh, some of the existing X apps and just renaming them. Like you know, XPDF, uh, the the PDF reader for for X is they're going to give it a new name, and some of the other uh, very very simple applications are they're just uh, redecorating, making them uh, I guess GTK three and uh, giving them new shiny names. And uh, I guess the other big thing that they were talking about was the the codecs are not going to be distributed with the actual installer. You'll have to download those separately. Which you know, I don't think that's huge, but uh, it, it just seemed to it seemed to come off negatively in in some of the other uh, shows I was listening to, and they're like, you know, gee, you know, might as well uh, you might as well just install Cinnamon on Ubuntu and, and call it good, you know, if you're just going to have to put all this you know stuff that already ships with Ubuntu <laughs> on your uh, on your Mint installed. Uh, Maybe I misread the Blogspot entry, but it kind of sounded like they were going to have one branch that actually had the codex included and one that didn't. I think what people are complaining about here is the fact that Mint is sort of losing its mintiness, because if you want to get a distribution that doesn't have all of the proprietary codex and stuff in it, you can just install Debian (laughs) uh, (laughs) and, and put the stuff in later. And that's sort of what is happening here. If they're taking all the stuff out that made Mint what Mint is, then it's not really Mint anymore, is it? Except for the you know, the Cinnamon or Mate desktop that they created to put on top of Ubuntu, you basically still have Ubuntu. So I don't know. It seems like much ado about nothing to me. But regardless of that, Linux Mint 18 is a thing based on the latest release of Ubuntu. And there is that. Do they still do Linux Mint Debian? Is there still a Debian version out there? I don't even remember. I haven't used Mint in a while. So I don't think so. I don't I didn't see it when I was installing uh, 17.3 here because uh, I, I do have a, a VM installed with 17.3. I did like uh, Linux Mint Ubuntu because it kind of got rid of the junk about Ubuntu that I didn't like. But then when Debian 8 rolled around and it was just incredible all by itself, I was like, well, I don't need Mint anymore and just kind of went back to it. Yeah, yeah. I have a Debian 8 install too. I'm still playing around with all those. One day I'll I'll pick one to rev up my other box. But No, we'll no you won't. <laughs> Trust I still me, like, if, you, I, if you're doing it now, you're going to do it forever. You don't, you uh, don't just, you know, <laughs> Linux distributions. You're either kind of into one, or you're never into one. You don't settle down into it. It's yeah, not, really it's not like, like a long term marriage or anything. Yeah, I really like the Ubuntu Studio because it comes with all the uh, all the video and audio applications kind of already baked in, and I don't have to go out and find them. <laughs> <laughs> right. You like Makulu then, because that has everything in it. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> Plus, it has a really, really flashy desktop experience. So you, you might want to check out Makulu if you want to try something new. Makulu, I'll have to take a look at that. Now we're gonna see what happens when we get to this topic. This is supposedly the big one for the night. I'm gonna probably try and cut it short if I can. Um, I think we can. <laughs> yeah, I think we can too. We don't have to go too deep into it because I, I, my opinion on this is very sort of short and sweet. Well, you, you hate both parties, so that works out well, right? <laughs> I don't hate both parties equally, let's put it that way. I, I, uh, I dislike both parties, but I certainly dislike one more than the other. But we're talking about the Oracle v. Google lawsuit thing that's going on. Actually, the second lawsuit, because the first one was a patent lawsuit. Now they're into copyright lawsuit. They, they being Oracle, lost the patent suit, so they filed a copyright suit. Yeah, they're looking for a fair use, right? That's what they're arguing right now, whether that's a fair use for them to rewrite their APIs. Right. Now we're into this thing. And the whole idea, the original idea behind the patent suit 
was that Oracle was claiming they could patent APIs, and Google was saying, no, you can't, particularly because the APIs that were in question were the Java APIs, and Google was screwed in a gigantic way, so you can kind of understand their contrariness to the whole idea. But there's another idea of being contrary to patenting APIs, which is kind of stupid, because you create APIs and put them out there so people can use them. I mean, they're, they're deliberately created as code so that other people can use them to implement your products. That's what APIs are there for. So the idea of patenting them is kind of stupid on the very top level. But this got through the courts, and the court said, yeah, and this, I guess the Supreme Court agreed. Yeah, basically a higher court has, uh, has remanded it back down to, to, to retry this fair use of the APIs. So, you know, the jury is... Is not necessarily the, the the people that can understand or or maybe have the nomenclature of understanding you know what is an API, and yeah I can see how you know Google's having to really try hard at uh, explaining what exactly these are, and of course Oracle has no vested interest in explaining what these are because you know they're just there to prove that Google's evil, right? Because because Oracle is the new SEO. They're simply a gigantic patent troll, basically. Uh, I, you know, I was going to put that in the notes, too. I was like, is, is Oracle the new SCO? Do we need Grok Law to come back and have a discussion on this? Uh, it seems like that's what they spend far more time filing lawsuits than they do putting out any kind of code. Yeah, I mean, they had, a, they had this lawsuit started seven months after they acquired Sun. So, I mean, you know, they must have had their eye on the prize uh, at the very beginning. Well, I'm and, sure when they acquired Sun that uh, apart from gaining the technology that Sun created, I'm absolutely sure they were looking at, they were licking their chops about the opportunity to stick it to everybody who was using Java. I mean, because Java is relatively ubiquitous. But they're heavily invested in it. All their all their big ERP solutions and CRM solutions are all all running on on Java. They have a lot of money invested in Java themselves, so I can see why they bought it originally. It worked out well for them, but it also works out for the fact that everybody else in the world is also using the technology. So if they can somehow patent it or copyright it and force people to pony up for their use of their technology. I mean, clearly this is a huge win for Oracle, and that's why they're pushing this so hard. Google had the opportunity to work out the licensing agreement with Sun prior to the to the acquisition from Oracle, but apparently they couldn't agree on any kind of licensing terms back then with what they were already doing with Android. So it kind of comes down to the idea of not being able to create a jury of your peers when it comes to the review of these cases because they're talking about the fact that it's a bunch of lay people which is what a jury is talking about you know what could be considered a highly technical topic and when you present an api as a technology someone who doesn't really sort of understand the fundamental workings of how programming goes may not see the benefit of an api and what damage it can do to close access to these things especially a technology as gigantic as android which is it's obviously not going to come to this, but what happens when those umpteen million cell phones can't work anymore because Oracle owns the rights to the software? It'd be anything Android, what, 4.4 and back that this really goes? Because that, that would be all your Dalvik engine-based uh, implementations of Android. If you've ever been in a negotiation with Oracle for a database license, you, you kind of know where Oracle comes from on just about everything they do. Yeah, and we run Oracle, so... Not not that I want to, but it's the kind of thing that we have to do because some of the third-party apps that we use use it for the back end, and we get saddled with it. In the um, show notes are additional 
another litigation that's currently involving Oracle, and you can uh, check it out there. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah, because Oracle is God, what a sue happy company. Again, I think they really are the next SEO. I mean, they, well, let's hope and they'll be completely gone and obliviated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't see that happening, unfortunately. <laughs> I know, I know. You can only you can dream. We, though, we can right? dream. That's true. <laughs> I'm I'm all for dreaming that big. <laughs> yeah, I'm dreaming yeah. of a world without Oracle. Speaking of Oracle, when it comes down to Linux, Oracle has a Linux distribution. So let's just say this here and now: don't use it. Um, i don't i don't know if it's still under active development but a while back they came out with what was called unbreakable linux um, oh yeah which is a oracle product if that's a thing you're using go with scientific linux there we go just just pick that you know they killed uh they killed solaris too so (laughs) um except there is an open solaris project out there well, yeah, it's called something else, though. They went from, like, Open Solaris to, what, Indiana? Indiana to something else, yeah. Something else. I don't know what the new one's called. I kind of lost track of it after that. It just, like, it, it was, yeah, never quite there. Well, that's enough of that. Yeah, enough of that. That's. I mean, I like legal topics. I really do. I'm a big fan of, of legalese. But when it comes to this idea that companies push things through on people who don't really know what they're talking about and get them through court systems to create decisions that are really bad for everybody. I don't know. You just have to kind of wonder. Constant IP lawsuits and, uh, you know, they really need to kind of look at getting rid of software patents. Moving on from our uh, legalese topics, we're going to talk about Linux in the ham shack. And you've been beating around on WinLink for a little bit. So let's talk about that. WinLink is basically a worldwide radio messaging system that, that intermixes the internet technology of email with the uh, amateur radio service uh, via RF. And uh, many of the older hams will know all about Pactor. Uh, that's been around for years, and that's kind of what the, the, the HF side of this thing has been running on, Pactor and uh, Packet. Uh, myself, I got rid of my, my TNC for Packet years ago, <laughs> so I haven't I still that. have my Packet TNC. Yeah, I had my KPC three until I sold it at the temperature, uh, Tampa Amateur Radio uh, Ham Fest. There, <laughs> I, I have an MFJ twelve seventy. <laughs> so you know, I was messing around with it. You know, we were all getting on online with it, and I wanted to try to get um, the Linux version installed, which they have uh, one called Pack Link Unix, which basically is the uh, the email side of it through Telnet. So uh, you 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 have to compile it. There's not an apt. Uh, or a PPA for it, so I had to had to do the whole hard compiling thing. Their advice was that it was difficult for Linux noobs. Fortunately, I'm not quite a noob, but uh, <laughs> you know, you run the configure, you see what breaks, what package is missing. So I threw in all the packages that you'll need to get it to compile. You know, I had to add postfix to my system, the Berkeley uh, DB development stuff, the Gmime dev, and uh, for the uh, packet side, you'll need the lib ax25. Uh, dev and then the thing compiles quite nicely and you can set it up to uh, deliver your your winlink mail to your local user's mailbox and then you can pick it up through there uh, with any of your mail clients or even you know command line mail clients work fine for that um, you end up getting a, a winlink address so you'll have your call sign at winlink.org and uh, the only thing that the linux version doesn't have which i really wanted to kind of try out was they have uh, winmore which is uh, the new uh, newer, I guess, HF uh, signaling method, uh, so you don't have to have the expensive Pactor uh, um, device. Um, you can use a simple uh, sound card device like a Signal Link or, or what have you. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, what do you have? You have that other one, don't you? <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> I so I, well, I have two, actually. I have a Rascal GLX, and I have a Rig Blaster Pro. Right, yeah. So any of those you can use, but unfortunately, there is no, uh, there's nothing built out in PackLink uh, Unix for Winmore. Uh, I guess it, uh, its last build is probably uh, uh, from uh, 2010, maybe, so it's at least six years old. Uh, the Windows client, I know we don't like talking about Windows, but uh, the we, RMS. We can ex- talk about Windows. Windows okay. is not the evil that, that Oracle is by yeah, any Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you can use Winmore in the RMS Express client that they offer, and, and that's a pretty slick client. And I did get it uh, to install fine under Wine, although I did not test it. I did not test it in the Winmore yet, so I'll have to get back to that. It's definitely interesting because it, uh, it it interlinks between that system and regular email, so I can send an email from from the WinLink network to my normal email address to Google or what have you, and uh, it works pretty well. And, and I guess the key is it allows you to send you know a full blown email with attachments and everything else over that over that same uh, same type of uh, network. Um, I guess similar things to WinLink would be like FL Message from FL Digi. Uh, you see a lot of the uh, Aries groups using that from uh, you know the W1HKJ uh, and Associates product, the FL Digi, and they have all those other programs, FL Message, FL Wrap, and, and stuff like that that allow you to send point-to-point messaging and stuff like that. The nice part about the WinLink is it's you know it's already an established network uh, for transmitting traffic. They have you know HF stations on all the time that are relaying that traffic. And then they, of course, they have a you know a huge uh, infrastructure for uh, the internet-based side of that thing as well. So it, it definitely seemed interesting. Uh, you know, I I remember hearing about it over the years, and I, I really never got into it. And it's just something that our uh, local coordinator wanted us uh, to look at and get installed. And and he has some goals of getting everybody online with it. So I figured I'd give it a try out and and uh, try out the the Linux port of that. This really sounds interesting, and it doesn't sound like it's too hard to get into. How how difficult was the compile thing? Was it a was it a download, configure, make, make, install, or was there a little more to yeah. it? Yeah, that was it. Like I say, as long as you have those libraries I list in the show notes, it's a, it'll compile right away, and you'll have full support for everything up to uh, packet. All right, sweet. I'm going to give that one a try. And the link to, of course, the information on Wing, WinLink and PackLink Unix, which is the Linux version or Unix version, I gather, uh, will of course be in the show notes. And I'm going to try and get in on this. I would actually love to have my, I would actually love to be able to get onto a client and email myself from my HF radio onto my Gmail account. I want to see that happen. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it's, it's one of those nerdy things that makes no sense to anyone. But if you, you know, if you've been in this game for a while, you know how cool that kind of thing is. So. <laughs> well, you think about it. If you're out somewhere, you know, I mean, even let's say you're maritime mobile, right? You, you have HF rig on your boat and you can still get your, send email back and forth via the system with all the relays that are out there. That's so very true. It definitely gives uh, access to people that have, you know, no internet access, but maybe have an HF system set up, you know, third world country, what have you, uh, ways to uh, communicate. Is it fairly responsive? I mean, I know HF communication can be a little dicey, uh, especially depending on propagation and stuff like that. But as far as sending emails and stuff, did it seem fairly responsive? I think it works out pretty well. I mean, Pactor and, and this network has been around for a long time. Next next time, we're going to talk about some other stuff that sounds pretty cool, too, especially an open source release of stuff that is quite definitely not open source, at least up until recently. So stay tuned for that, plus uh, some adventures in other um, low bandwidth digital modes, which we haven't really talked about in the past, but we're going to. Cool. Little, little teaser there. There you go. All right, so I wasn't going to have music for the program, but I decided that I was going to have music for the program. And I found out 
that uh, Heffervescent, which is actually just a guy. Um, Isn't that a beer? Um, it, it might be. It's also a band, and I'm using air quotes, who, who's actually just a guy with a bunch of uh, samplers and uh, guitars and stuff like that in the UK, uh, has put out several albums, released them on Jamendo and probably in other places too, and we've played his music quite a bit on our program. Always puts out some interesting stuff. I got to say, I wasn't super enthusiastic about a lot of the tracks on this latest one, but it did come out in March of this year, so it's only about two months old. Brand new music from Heffervescent. I did find some interesting stuff on there. Uh, this is a track that runs just a shade over five minutes. Uh, it's called Skeletons. It's a little unusual, as is most Heffervescent music, so uh, we'll just spin this one for you all, and then we'll move on to our next topic. I wanna share in your ecstasy Pearls. Every day will soon 
Okay, so that's Skeletons by Heffervescent. Uh, by the way, the gentleman's name is Andy Doran, who is all of the instrumentation and all of the vocalization on any of the Heffervescent tracks. So there you go. That's that's the guy behind the music. So pretty cool stuff. I think that's probably the fourth or fifth Heffervescent track we've played. And like I said, this new album is kind of different. It's called uh, Logic Decimator. There you go. That's the kind of man he is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So moving on, we've got our announcements and feedback, and we've got all kinds of junk in here tonight. So I <laughs> guess we need to move on to it. So we've got some Hamvention news and rumors coming up. Um, Bill, you threw these in here, so hit it. Yeah, the uh, the European Hands announced a new radio, not just a new radio, but a radio called the New Radio. Uh, dual band multi-mode radio to support DMR, D-Star, and CF, C4FM. I guess it was only a matter of time for someone to start packaging a radio here with everything. Um, this should be uh, here at Hamvention, so hopefully if you get a break, you can uh, go take a look at it and maybe get some information on it uh, beyond what's on the website. Uh, we also uh, see that uh, the Yezu's coming out with the FT891. Looks like uh, maybe a replacement for the uh, 817 or maybe the 857. Uh, don't have all the details on it. I see there's some pre-order information out there at uh, some of the various uh, vendors. The Gigaparts, uh, I think, is the one we have listed here. We see some FCC ID badges and, and all that good stuff on the QRZ forums. So there's there should be some uh, – there's always new products being uh, you know announced at Hamvention. It's always kind of interesting to see uh, – what 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 gets there that nobody's heard about yet? Have you heard about anything new? I've I've heard of several new things, and I'm getting all of my information about the new stuff coming up in Hamvention from their Twitter feed because they are putting all kinds of stuff out there. They're like retweeting everybody who talks about being in Hamvention. I think the latest thing I saw was Icom was bringing some new hardware, uh, so that will be pretty cool. At Hamvention on Twitter, you can find out all this the stuff they they're posting probably. 
50 or 60 tweets a day about all the stuff that's coming up at Hamvention. Good way to find out about what's going on there. Yeah, they've oh. really stepped up their social media presence this time. I remember a couple of years ago, you know, you're lucky to get the tweets of the uh, of the numbers they pick at the, the hourly raffle drawings. <laughs> right. Don't forget that we are actually going to be there. We will be there. East Hall, booth 625, right inside the East Hall doorway is where we're going to be. So hopefully those folks who are going to be out there will get to see them. And that's coming up real soon. It's going to be on Friday. We're actually going to be in town on Thursday. Uh, We'll be there the whole time. Can't wait to see everybody. It's been a long time. This is a bit of feedback we've got from Lord Drakenblut, uh several months ago, actually. Kilo Delta 9 Bravo Whiskey Juliet, and it's been languishing, so I'm just going to kind of get this out of here. Um, this this was back when we were trying to increase our badger quotient, <laughs> or whatever the mathematical term for it would be. Uh, but he sent us this voicemail a while back, and it's probably about time that we played it. So here's Lord D. Hey, guys. Lord Drakenblut here, the Digital Dragon. First... Rich Pointel, I've got to say, I just heard episode 161. Seems like you're a really great addition to the show. Hope you're around for a while, buddy. Keep up the great work. To keep up my tradition at this point of keeping the Badger... This is where we say, nope, just didn't last. Sorry. (laughs) ...your content high. In, well, it's not just Boy Scouts, but Boy Scouts kind of cobbed onto it in a special way. There's the tradition of sending someone out on a snipe hunt. For those of you who don't know, a snipe is a creature that doesn't exist, that you send people out looking for it to kind of send them out on a lark. This story supposedly came out of Michigan area with a troop up there. They had taken a scout troop out for a camping trip and sent them on a snipe hunt. What they did not expect was one of the boys to actually return dragging a burlap sack that was rather animated with some kind of animal inside of it. That seemed very upset. As it turned out, the kid in question had somehow happened across a sleeping badger and had shoved it into this sack before it could wake up and had started dragging it back to camp. One of the scout leaders who was on this trip opens the bag and discovers nothing but claws and teeth of a very pissed-off badger inside of the bag. Not knowing how else to release this animal safely, the scout leader in question drags the sack out of camp and begins to beat the badger against a tree inside of this burlap sack. Needless to say, everyone kind of packed up and got the hell out of town. That is my contribution to keeping the badger content quite high. Don't beat a dead badger. (laughs) Yeah, we heard that story over dinner one night, so. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Yeah, one of those classic BSA stories. All right. (laughs) All right. So anyway, thanks, Lord D, Kilo Delta 9, Bravo, Whiskey Juliet for that slice of badger. We appreciate it. Okay, so we also have a voicemail from Doug, November 6th, Lima Mike X-Ray, who asks us a question, and it's an open source question, so that's very cool. So here's Doug. Hello, Russ, Cheryl, and Rich. This is Doug, November 6th, Lima Mike X-Ray. You had been talking over the last couple of shows about Raspberry Pis some, and I believe that Rich mentioned... uh, a project that he was either working on or trying to do something with his old uh, ham libraries that he had to actually port them to Raspberry Pi. So it got me thinking. Um, lately there's been a little more news about, I guess they're calling it the Pi Top, something like that is basically a laptop clamshell for a Raspberry Pi. Uh, Adafruit, I know, is selling 
um, a version of that, a kit that you could actually put together. I believe it actually comes with the screen and the keyboard. Uh, it's about 275, if I remember correctly. And then you could pair it with either Raspberry Pi 2 or Raspberry Pi 3, and you'd have yourself a nice little laptop. Now, of course, they ain't going to be thin as some of the other ones, but I was wondering how viable that would be for, say, uh, mobile communications, because, you know, the Raspberry Pi doesn't use a lot of power. And so, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Anyway, thanks a lot. Bye. For mobile communication, it would certainly be great because you would have very low battery drain, whether you were doing it off your vehicle's battery or if you had an external like lead acid 12 volts power supply or something like that. Whether you're doing uh, soda, for example, or NPOTA or just uh, driving around in your car wanting to do PSK31, I think it would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you can use FL Digi and anything else that you can get com- to compile on the uh, on the ARM architecture there, so... I would see why it wouldn't be a problem. For Linux is pretty much everything, and since yeah. the Raspberry Pi is certainly low power, um, I don't see why this wouldn't be a, a brilliant solution for that kind of thing. And the, the Pi 3 is almost as good a class of computer as a standard netbook, for for example, or something like that. It's a quad-core processor, and you've got all the USB, you've got built-in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's uh, nothing but a full-blown computer. And if you wrap a little laptop case around it, what could be better? You just need uh, small thumbs, right? So you can use the keyboard. <laughs> I kind of gather it's like a netbook size. It's like a three-quarter scale, something like that. Oh, uh, no, the one I saw on there was they had a much smaller version. Oh, really? Yeah, it was about the size of the Pi itself, just a little bit bigger to fit uh, the case around. It, uh, it almost reminded me of like an Altoid kin type, you know, Altoid uh, oh, case. Oh, no, this one, this one was actually on Adafruit. It's a, it's actually a full-size netbook-style case uh, oh, cool. with, with a reasonably-sized keyboard. All right, so we also have more feedback. More feedback. We love feedback. Uh, this is a comment on episode 168, which is the last episode from Johnny, November 4, Johnny, e- Johnny, November 4, Juliet Echo Kilo. Uh, he says, hey, Russ, I'm surprised you're not using something like Airtime for your production there. Also, for all your mixing needs, this product looks really impressive. It's called Ardour. I think you mentioned Icecast before, and that is a really good streaming server. I used to run it back in the bad Napster days before you had to have time-stamped video proof that you bought your music, and it was your music you were streaming. (laughs) My experience with Icecast was just as a home radio station that played my favorite tracks on a loop and streamed it at 64 kilobit over ADSL. Hey, you may want to try and keep this. Bill Guy, he seems like he knows what he's talking about with both Linux and Hamshack stuff. As always, (laughs) I know, know. pulled the wool right over their eyes. As always, excellent show, 7-3, from Johnny, November 4, Juliet Echo Kilo. So thanks, Johnny. Appreciate that. I did actually look at the airtime thing, and I built a VM on one of my servers to set it up. I'm really looking forward to trying it out because I think it could actually... Uh, do what we need as far as broadcasting and being able to create like sound carts and uh, loops and actually stream things when we're not live so we could actually combine our uh, off hour stream and our live stream into the same stream which would actually be kind of cool um, so I'm looking at that um, I've looked at Ardour before Ardour is actually a digital audio workstation for Linux um, and probably other platforms it's a little bit heavy-handed for what we're doing here Um, but it is definitely a great product, especially if you need a virtual digital audio workstation, but that's, that's not the kind of thing we're doing here, but I really like the idea of airtime and I hope to get it working here in the next little bit. So, uh, thanks for that bit of information. I appreciate it. And thanks for writing in. We also appreciate that. 
We also got some feedback via Google Plus from Bruce Victor Echo 2 Golf Zulu India, who says, uh, Hi, Russ. Hope all is well with you. Just thought that you might like to know about a great open source project called MMDVM. Really interesting project. We had a Blogspot page as well as a Facebook page. And I guess what prompted me was the interview that you did with John from Northwest Digital Radio on their hardware to convert a DR1X into a D-Star repeater. Well, as I commented with the MMDVM project, you can make it a tri-mode repeater, Fusion, D-Star, and DMR. But that's just one of the repeaters that people are playing with. Guys are converting conventional analog repeaters like Motorola, Tate, Kenwood, and others to digital repeaters. Or it just takes a couple of compatible radios. Our open source hardware, an Arduino Duo, and the real key, Jonathan Naylor's MMDVM software, are open source as well. The links that he sent me, including a YouTube video which shows the operation of MMDVM with the DR1X, uh, will be in the show notes. Uh, thanks once again to Bruce VE2GZI for information about doing DMR with the DR1X and MMDVM. All open source, very cool stuff. Now, Cheryl's been waiting very patiently for her time to shine. So here we go. It's all up to you now. The recipe that, that Russ picked out today has been a favorite of the family for years. Uh, and we actually served it this last weekend at a Mexican-themed party we held. And as always, everybody raved about it. This is a very moist and very sweet cornbread. So don't let the thought of ick, dry cornbread, try or turn you off from trying this out. And the recipe that we're sharing this week is for our Mexican cornbread. And it has butter, sugar, eggs, cream-style corn, and I also typically throw in some regular corn as well. Green chili peppers, shredded cheese, flour, cornmeal, baking powder, and salt. And spends an hour in the oven and comes out uh, good enough to eat for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You can't go wrong with cornbread. It's it's actually kind of heavy. It's, it's a not, very yeah. It's a very heavy cornbread, but it's... A little sweet and a little, just a little spicy with the green chilies. And it is very good breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It doesn't doesn't have a time of the day you can eat at any time. <laughs> All right. So moving on, we got the social media roundup. So let's do that. All righty then. Uh, this time for donations, we have Torsten Herrenberg. For subscriptions, we have Jonas Rulio, Jeremy Hall, Michael Connolly, Harrison Kyle, Scott Pettigrew, Bob Yerke, Paul Griffith, Ronald Ike, Johnny Kinsey, Brian Smith, John Spriggs, Robert Halliday, Ben Schram, Michael Aiello, John Clark, Rob Branch Dash, Edward Donnelly, Donald Gover, Alan Wilson, Stephen Sainer, Dylan Engel, Jason Marinero, Ronald Nesler, James Blocker, Doug Redder, Mike Lasky, Darren King, Petro Kartsakis, Donna Farron, Gary Horlick, Bill Stearns and Bill Piotr. Sure, why not? Uh, sounds I, good to me. I, uh, I, don't I was going to go with Pi Otter, but okay. whatever. <laughs> Pi Otter, Pi Otters, <laughs> Pooh Otter, who yeah, knows? Something yeah, something like that. <laughs> Bill, you know who you are. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Yeah, and on Facebook people this week, we have an unknown person, purely because I cannot read kanji, uh, from... Fuchu, Tokyo, and I'm guessing with that one. <laughs> you, could, you could read that a whole different way. Yeah, I, yes. No, and that's what I found when I was copying that from Facebook, too. Do you know the Bob and Tom show, Bill? Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Okay. A few years ago, they were reading a story, or Christy Lee was reading a story that happened to take place in the town of Fukutoku. And I remember this very vividly because... 
Every time she tried to read the story, she started reading the name of the city with a fu <laughs> instead of a foo. <laughs> and Tom would admonish her every time she started reading the story. It's like, you can't start with fu because then we have to, you know, hit the button. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of where we're at with the name of this town, which is either Fuchu or Fuku. Right, not sure which one. Just don't start with pho and yeah. you're fine. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. All right. <laughs> uh, Sylvain Arbor, G. Brandon Hoyt, and Thomas Carroll. They were all our joiners on Facebook this week. On Google, we had Rizaldi Yosef, Cyril Cooper, Torsten Herrenberg, and Yusuf Gundagavis. Sure, we're going to go yeah, with that. Yeah, we're going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> On Twitter, we had Christensen143, G. Jones932, Linux Pitstop, Mammy Frank, KF7IJZ, Dr. Villius, KE5PRL, OE8APR, and Robbie underscore W1RCP. No one joined us on YouTube, and on our mailing list, Pat Snyder and Babylon4 joined us, and there were no merchandise sales. So that's it. The show is like over, which means I have to like hit a button here and um, play some music. Hey, look, and there it is. So you can become an LHS ambassador. You can visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you might represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby Linux Con or Ham Fest. We love feedback, as this episode will tell you. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter. Or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. You can visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on the free node network, and you can subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts can be purchased at www.cafepress.com slash Podcast. You can also help out the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. You can listen to us live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0100 Zulu in the summer, 0200 Zulu in the wintertime. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website. Please check out our website at lhspodcast.info for everything you ever wanted to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners and our responders and our donators and our subscribers, live, quasi-live, past, present, and future. We appreciate every one of you. And we are now on Google Music. So if you are on Google Music, you can find Linux in the Hamshack there and aggregate our feed that way. We're also on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. I got the iTunes feed fixed. So all is well with the world. So, for me, broadcasting from Studio 3D, I'm Russ, K5TUX. Across the way from me is Cheryl, who's eyeballing her phone. I'm eyeballing my phone, checking out all kinds of stuff. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) And from Billings, Montana, we have Bill, NE4RD. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. All right, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time, and that will be after Hamvention, and we really hope we get to see all of you out in Dayton, Ohio, in three days' time. So take care, everyone. If we don't see you there, we'll catch you on the next show. Bye now.
shouldn't play with that lizard. You're going to go blind. <laughs>